0: Good morning. Uh, thanks uh, for being here. It's been said a couple times, but we are grateful that you're here, and we hope you feel welcome. My name is Lance. If we haven't got a chance to meet, uh, it is a privilege of mine and honor as one of the pastors here. I often get to consider the Bible with you on Sunday mornings at this time. So we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Uh, we're coming near to the end of this epistle, a New Testament letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, a young protege. He was concerned for Timothy. I suppose that Paul actually had cascading concerns. First, he had major concern that Christ would be magnified as much as he could be. Second, his concern was for the church as a whole, wherein Christ ought to be magnified. And then, of course, because Timothy was a Christian engaged in caring for that church, Paul was very, very urgently interested in Timothy's life, in his faith, in his well-being, and that's what we're finding in this letter. It's advice from an older man who has fought the good fight, encouraging a younger man who may be discouraged. So I want to take a moment and read verse 11 down through the end of chapter 6, to the end of 1 Timothy. We're going to read 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting in verse 11, down to 21. Again, this is Paul's letter to Timothy, 6th chapter, starting in verse Verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's pray. God, we ask what Paul prays for. Timothy, that is that grace would be with us. There's never been a moment in life where we've not needed grace. Father, thank you for unmerited favor, for loving us when we don't deserve it. Thank you for initiating. Thank you for sending your son to die for us while we were yet sinners. And I pray that this morning, whatever bit of pride, whatever bit of we deserve it remains in us, that that would be put to death, and that we would come humbly. God, I thank you that you are a Father who loves us as your children. You know our needs, you know our concerns, you know every bit of anxiety, every bit of distraction, all of the hurts, the suffering, suffering due to our own sin and suffering due to the sin of others. You know these things. So I ask, Father, would you love us well and send your spirit to bring healing and send your spirit to bring focus and send your spirit to give us eyes to see? I do want to be helpful this morning, God, so would you please use our time together here as we consider these verses in 1 Timothy 6 and would you give me an ability to be of benefit to your people? We are crooked, make us straight. We see dimly, give us bright vision. And God, wherever we're lacking in hope or energy this morning, God, give us a vibrancy. We desire life and a hope for the good things you have for us in Christ. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. I learned a lot uh, from one of my best friends. Uh, One of my best friends uh, passed a few years ago, and one of the things that we would often talk about is parenting, and I learned a lot uh, from him. Uh, A lot of the things that we would talk about had to do with the way that he would direct and instruct and pull out conversation from his kids. From the time that they were two or three, they would have family meetings. And one of the most common family meetings in my friend's home was what I would call, or I came to to call hearing descriptions and a couple times sitting in on these meetings, we do meetings. And what I mean by we do meetings is that oftentimes, my friend Mark would talk with his kids and he would see something that he was concerned about or he'd hear them talking about kids at school or things that they did. One time he went to a track meet and his daughter just kind of lazily went through it. Another time he realized that One of his kids was not applying himself in a class at school. And every single time when one of the explanations for something something like that came forward and it sounded something like this, well, but nobody does that. Nobody does that. It's okay. You don't have to go to the extra study hall. Nobody does that. No, no, no. This one was just for fun. I know it's a race and you can get points, but everybody just runs with their friends. Now, I know that there was offered you know, an extra book for us to take and to read, but nobody does that. And over and over and over again, Mark would talk with them, and he would, he would say to them, here's the thing. In this house, in this family, we do. Whatever your friends are doing, or whatever your friends are not doing, or if people say it's not in vogue to pray, or if it's not a cool thing to be churchy, or if it's not a cool thing to do some extra studying, or if you're not with the kids who say, let's try our best and see what we can squeeze out of this body, here's the thing, they may not, but we do. We do. We do. it was that speech over and over and over again. Sometimes in matter of faith, sometimes in matter of academics, sometimes in simple things like manners and the way that they respected their neighbors, A new neighbor would move into the neighborhood, and he would want his children, sometime within the first 24 hours, one by one, to go over and knock on the door and introduce themselves and say, we're so glad you live here. If you need anything, let us know. And they would protest and say, no one does that. We do. If everyone else quits, we do. And I remember these conversations, and we talk about them often. Because of the reality that so often our situation, our context, and what other people do around us become the defining factors for what God is calling us to do and to be. And that rather than starting from a place that says something like this, Spirit of God, move in me and call me to what you desire for me, instead we say, what is the basic average of the things happening around me? And I'll just sort of float Through. You see moments throughout scripture where God's plan, his movement of redemption, happens because every once in a while, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter what all of Israel is doing, someone stands up and says, Man, all of Israel is worshiping the golden calf? Well, I won't. Perhaps the most cross stitched verse of all time. Choose for yourself this day, right? You know the ending but as for me and my house. You see, in the middle of difficult circumstances, in a world that has fallen, when a lot of things are going to be buffeting us with suffering, with discouragement, with distraction, I believe that the Spirit of God calls out in the midst of all of that, and at a certain point in life, we need to ask the question, but what about me? What is God calling me to? And I enter all this and describe that kind of sentiment, this idea about, well, what do I do? Because here at the end of this letter, Paul has now turned his attention to Timothy. He has been so loving up to this point, encouraging and trying to help him with all of the craziness that's going on around him. Timothy may be at the end of himself. He's discouraged. He sees all of the people who are fleeing to crazy controversies. He sees the people who are being caught up in all kinds of temptations in the world. There's infighting. There's distraction. There's profane things happening in the worship of God. And then near the end of this letter, it's as, as though Paul senses something in Timothy, or perhaps a temptation. that Timothy may think to himself, well, I might as well as well. And it's this moment of instruction in verse 11, but... As for you, O man of God, as for you, what about you? You know, it's an interesting thing to say, and I understand that there's a tension in the midst of a, a letter that is about the church and about corporate faith. I don't want this to turn into a good old fashioned self help talk. Or to ignore the reality that we are placed in the context of a local church with the full body of Christ for reasons. We're going to see some of those reasons here in a little bit. But the reality is is that all of us will stand before the judgment throne of God, accountable and responsible for us, for you. Many people's testimonies they would call boring. Boring. They would say, well, you know, I don't really have a a story. I just knew God from the time that I grew up. But the more that I listen to stories like that, I realize in almost every single one, if someone is faithful and if someone is walking, if someone is pursuing, there's a moment in that story, even as boring as it is, where it's as though something stirred in them and you can see it. The moment that they say, as for me, they needed to determine Who is Jesus Christ, and what does He mean to me, and is the Spirit of God moving in me, and will I make this faith my own? I can remember distinct moments like this for me. I knew what my grandfather believed, and my grandmother and my parents believed, and I knew what my church believed, and I knew what my pastor believed, I knew what my godly friends believed, I knew what my youth guy said, but I distinctly remember moments trying to fall asleep at night. And just thinking, what about you? As for you. And here, Paul gives Timothy a list of things to think about, a list of things to do. If I had to give a title here, I would call this little section, As for You, a Focused Faith. He needs to focus Timothy. There's a lot of distractions around focus. And then he gives him seven action words to make progress in the Christian life. Seven action words. We are about to embark, yes, on a seven-point sermon. Seven action words. I'm even going to skip over a few action words. Because in the middle of this section that we just read from 11 down to 21, there's a section where he goes back to instruction for the rich in the present age. He's hit that a few times in the letter. Ephesus was a profitable town, a port city, and it must have been a concern of his. But what I want to focus on specifically is these seven action words that Paul gives to Timothy to say Timothy here's the thing when the world's crazy around you and if everyone else is if everyone else is leaving the faith or if everyone else is confused you can't be confused don't lose yourself in the midst of trying to help others and it's these seven action words that create a kind of focused faith For him, These are the words, I'm going to list them out, and then I'm going to go back and discuss them and consider the the meaning and how they function in the Bible, and then maybe consider, well, what does that look like to apply for us? These are the words. First, flee. Second, pursue. Third, fight. Fourth, take hold. Fifth, we are to keep. Sixth, guard. Seventh, avoid. Flee, pursue, fight, take hold, keep, guard, avoid. If you ever feel like your faith is weak, if you ever feel like you're being swept along by the current of the world, if you feel discouraged, if you feel like you might not make it, perhaps one of these action words could give you a more focused faith. First, Paul says to Timothy, you have to flee You have to flee. Now, the thing about these first two action words is they're reciprocal. They work together. One is an active running, an avoidance, a getting away from. The other is going towards something. But it must be said at the outset, flee these things. One of the things that you're going to have to do is to have a good protection plan, a plan of avoidance, a plan to avoid, as the Proverbs would say, heaping hot coals in your own lap. How do you avoid this kind of thing? In the context of 1 Timothy, the things to avoid are different doctrines, conceit, controversies, envy, slander, love of money, all these things that may weigh you down. And he says to Timothy, you need to think about the things to run from. There's a number of illustrations of people running from danger, or realizing that something is coming and, and getting out. This idea of running from a volcano, for instance. You hear rumblings, you see smoke, there's fires coming. There comes a point when In every circumstance that I've ever seen or you could ever read about civilizations being leveled by or cities being transformed by something like a volcano, there's a a certain point in the histories of these things where there were certain people yelling out, flee. Like, now's the time. We have to run. We have to turn. We have to go. And what happens in the middle of all that is that everyone starts to wonder how dangerous it really is. Some people who think it's not very respectable to flee. If we were more reasoned and well-considered, we wouldn't have to flee. Flee sounds so like living with abandon. It seems undignified. But Paul says to Timothy, here's the thing, Timothy, you've seen this up close. You know what this can do. Sometimes you need to be undignified enough to just run. Just run. And many of us walk slowly slowly around things that are very, very dangerous for us. We flirt with and coddle things that are really, really trying to kill us. Flee. Run. Like when the bear growls and charges. Run. There are Lots of circumstances where this could be unique or different for you. I don't know what these things would be. I don't know if you are specifically tied or drawn to different doctrines. Maybe what I'd say to you is, run away from YouTube. If you're the conspiracy guy, I don't know, run, delete it from your phone, run. Conceit and controversies. If you're the person who just can't get enough of the Facebook debates back and forth, I don't know, delete it, throw your phone in the river, something, flee. Jesus gives this idea, right? This idea that sometimes if our right arm or our right hand is causing us to sin, just cut it off. If our eye is causing us to sin, sometimes you pluck it out. And someone listening could have said to Jesus, now come on, be reasonable. I mean, you don't go so drastic with these things. And I believe the response from Paul would have been, in the spirit of Jesus, listen, there is a danger to sin. There's a danger to distraction in your faith. There's a danger to drifting into different doctrines that when you wake up to it, you might need to be drastic. And so I don't know what that means for you or for me, but at least sometimes the Spirit of God wakens us to the smell of smoke, to the smoldering of flames around us, to the rumbling of the volcano, to the slow growl of the bear. And there may be something right now that you think to yourself, no, all the warning signs are there, and I need to run. I don't know what it would be, but Paul says to Timothy Timothy, sometimes you got to be able to run. Just flee. Get out. End the relationship. Stop the business practice. Confess the sin. Do something drastic. Don't go to that place anymore. Cut off the relationship. End the social media account. I mean, I don't I don't know what it is, but sometimes when you really see the danger concerning your soul, you do things that may seem a little drastic to people. Now, it might not mean you have to live like that forever, but sometimes you just have to flee. Can I just say that in the midst of this too, sometimes someone fleeing from sin in their own personal circumstance will look like legalism and craziness to others? Have you ever had this circumstance? Or you hear someone describe the way they live their, their, their life and you think to yourself, wow, I could never do that. That sounds horrible. You seem really, really unable to live in a particular way. And what I would ask for is be sensitive to fleeing people. You don't know what they're running from. You don't know the danger that it's caused. You don't know the difficulty of their soul. Don't be quick to call out legalism or to cut, say to someone something like, hey, listen. It's just one drink. I mean, really. What's the big deal? It's just one movie. It's just one web page. Hey, fine. Sometimes people flee for reasons that you don't know, and it may be the spirit of God in them fleeing. Sometimes you got to run. I don't know how else to say this or to describe it. I'm trusting that the spirit of God speaks to you to figure out maybe either a circumstance you had run from or one that you may need to. Pull up, your, pull up your pants and run. You know the picture? Like just undignified, like just tripping over yourself running like I'm out. And Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, here's the thing, some things just get out. Now, second, he tells them though, in a reciprocal kind of way is that you also need to pursue Sometimes you need to pursue something, and one of the dangers of being the kind of person who's always ready to run is that you can feel as though your whole life is avoidance and just fleeing, just leaving. For, in fact, maybe one of the critiques of the Christian life is that people are so obsessed with what they don't do that they don't do anything. I don't know if you've ever felt that as though all of the Christian life was in the midst of what not to do. And this is why I think it's so wonderful that the Bible describes right after flee that he says, pursue things, pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. Once you've run, you have to run somewhere, and the question becomes, Not only that you run first and then pursue, but sometimes pursuing is a very, very healthy way to flee. There's times when we flirt with and we dangerously get close to things that are terrible for us because we just don't use our time well. We're not busy enough. I'm so aware that this sounds like the most churchy of all speeches in the history of church. You can just hear the old lady saying like, idle hands the devil's workshop. But you know where these sayings come. Maybe there's some wisdom in the ages. I mean, don't use it ham-fistedly, but the idea would be this. Sometimes we need to be busy in pursuing the good things in life so that we're not so open to the temptations that will be dangerous to our souls. The question becomes, are you taking a proactive view of your life, especially when it comes to spiritual things? What does it look like for you to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness? I mean, just start with something like love. How long will it take you and how much time is it going to fill in your life just saying, I'm going to become better at loving the people around me? Just going to make love my goal. I don't know, maybe you're naturally loving and you get this in a day. You're just a prodigy, you're Magnus Carlsen, and you're the Grand Master of love at age 13 or something. But for me, I think to myself, wow, I could probably spend, I don't know, a couple of lifetimes just perfecting love. Just stop thinking about yourself and love the people around you more, more tangibly, more consistently. That's a hard one. Steadfastness. Just find good things and keep at them. Tell yourself, don't quit. What have you quit that you need to pick back up? Man, you work on those things a little while, it takes some time. Pursue gentleness. What a pursuit. Pursue not pithy, hot take, one-liners, oh no he didn't moments, but to pursue the ability to speak truthfully into circumstances, in ways that are gentle, the ways that are life-giving, the ways, ways that woo and are winsome rather than breaking and smashing. Righteousness, godliness, faith, what will it look like to pursue these things? How much time do we have to pursue It takes a little bit of planning. It takes a little bit of effort. It takes a little bit of preparedness to pursue these things well. He goes on, a third verb. So flee and pursue, I think, are are reciprocal. Remember this. You can decide to yourself, you know what, I want to pursue good things. And you might find yourself so busy you have less to flee from. And there may be some red gleaming light that's in your life that you need to flee from, and you got to find somewhere to go. Don't just empty your life. It'll be filled in by some other inane terrible thing. Just flee from something maybe, and then pursue. They're reciprocal. But he also brings up something that I believe is encouraging, but maybe discouraging at first sight. He says, fight, fight, Timothy, you're going to have to fight. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Now, one thing right at the outset. A fight means this won't be easy. And we can't be weaklings. And we can't be easily discouraged. And we can't expect that the world is going to turn toward us and hand everything that we desire on a silver platter. I wish... I wish, I wish healthy food was delicious. I wish that muscles grew and became totally ripped by sheer inactivity. I wish that gold multiplied itself. I wish that money came easy. I mean, everybody wishes that things were easy, but most every good thing in this life will need to at some level be fought for. And he tells Timothy, here's the thing. You've been called and you've had hands laid on you and you know what you should flee and you know what to pursue, but here's the thing. Sometimes it's going to feel like a fight and you're going to have to be disciplined enough to keep in it. Paul often uses illustrations of the kind of self-control, the kind of discipline that sporting requires. Sometimes you need a fight. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is an example where Paul thinks about this for himself. He doesn't tell Timothy, as for you, out of some diagnosis for others, but not himself. Paul has lived this and he has considered the consequences. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you can see that he is looking at and wondering what it looks like to fight. He uses these illustrations of athletes. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? I do not run aimlessly, I do not exercise self-control, I don't discipline my body. These are not pleasant words, they take effort, and it indicates that in this life and in this world, spiritually speaking, much akin to it is physically, that there's going to have to be some effort exerted. And it will be in the midst of the fighting that we find God's grace, that we find His favor and that we are strengthened and grow. Reading through a biography of Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt credits the the great state of North Dakota with his eventual presidency. I don't know if you knew that. So there. But there's wonderful stories of Teddy Roosevelt. He was an unbelievably weak child. Hasmatic, constantly sick, Fevers, weak, laid up in bed for days and days on end, often as a child. He was brilliant from the beginning. He had a conversation with his dad as he neared the age age of 10. His dad told him, here's the thing, in mind you are unbelievably ready. You've taken a hold of life, but you do not have the body. And so Roosevelt determined right then that he was going to fight He got every bit of exercise equipment he possibly could. He would stay up all hours of the day training himself, exercising self-control, putting his body to the test. Sometimes he quite literally fought. He went down the road in Manhattan where they lived and he joined a boxing club to try to get stronger. One of the most defining moments of his early life was in his second year at Harvard, and he was attempting to box for the school. One of the most interesting things about Teddy Roosevelt is that one of the most defining factors where he gained status in his school was in a fight that he lost. As the match was about to come to a close in the first round, the guy called it, it was over, he stopped. The guy that he was fighting turned and punched him square in the face to the point where his nose was moved to the side and bloodied and everyone in the crowd began booing and being so angry because this was a low blow this was a this is something that shouldn't have happened it was a suffering that came from nowhere and right in the midst of it with blood streaming down and eyes blurry roosevelt lifted up his hand and hushed the whole crowd and he said it's fine it's totally okay he didn't hear the end of the round there's nothing wrong here. I can fight on. And he spent the next two to three rounds barely able to see through the blood from the suffering that was unjust. He lost. But all anyone could talk about from that day forward was how much fight he had and how honorable he was despite dishonorable circumstances." That kind of thing is going to be necessary at some point in all of us. You see, sometimes we get around to fighting the good fight of faith, but we think it's like a vending machine. We'll fight the good fight of faith as long as we're being rewarded in the proper ways. We pull the Pez dispenser, candy comes out. The reality is is that our fight will be tested far more often when the candy doesn't come. We're going to have to fight through a world where circumstances are not always perfect. There's going to be unjust suffering that will hit us. We'll be misunderstood. We'll find a weakness in ourselves that we never knew was there. We'll realize that we were more entwined with sin than we thought possible. We'll want to quit. And Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, I know people in the church are crazy. I know that you're being reviled. I know that you're finding yourself discouraged. I know that things aren't going as well as you thought they were, but here's the thing, you need to fight the good fight of faith. It is a good fight because faith is worth keeping. Run the race, discipline your body, keep it under control, and run in a way that you'll obtain the prize. That's the instruction that Paul gives to Timothy. So we flee, and we pursue, and we fight, sometimes even when it's difficult. Fourth, he says to take hold of. Now, this is an interesting phrase. Take hold of. Grab onto eternal life. He says, be the kind of person who takes hold of eternal life. It's an odd thing to describe to Timothy, who's been charged with the preaching of the gospel of eternal life. Wasn't he already saved? Is he telling Timothy that you need to become a Christian? I think the reality is... No, the word here to seize or to grab onto with violence if necessary, one commenter says that Paul is urging Timothy to seize the eternal life that he's been given, to grasp it, to lay hold of it, to make it completely his own, and then maybe more so to enjoy it and live it to the full. We have been given everything that pertains to life and godliness in Christ, and so many of us leave that inheritance, leave that benefit on the shelf take hold, take stock of, reckon yourself alive in Christ. Again, Paul is not a stranger to this kind of verb. He says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Some translations, to take hold of. And he presses on to make it his own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Are you taking advantage of the full benefits of being in Christ? You have God, the one who controls the world, the one sovereign, the Lord of lords, the King of kings. He is yours. He is for you. You're in his family. He desires you to speak to him. He wants you to cast your cares upon him. Are you taking hold of these joys? Paul says, Timothy, you've got the tools that you need, but they're in the shop and you're just leaving them there. Go grasp what you've been given. He then tells him, not only to flee and to pursue and to fight and to take hold of, but he says to keep. In other words, keep saying the things that you know to be true. There's a kind of self talk in here. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, he says in verse 13 of 1 Corinthians 6. Or 1 Timothy 6, I charge you who give life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, in light of what Jesus has done, to keep the commandment unstained. I think the idea here is that he should keep the command of the orders that God has given him. And one of those things that he needs to keep is the good news that is true, to tell himself again and again and again, when he is discouraged Jesus is for me, and this is what he's done, and I am alive, and I must carry on with my orders. Jesus is perhaps the greatest example of someone who carried on in his orders despite the great cost to himself. Jesus laid down his life, knowing full well that he would die at the hands of scoffers. Jesus knew that it would require separation from the Father, and yet he sacrificed himself for us. This confession that Paul is considering, I think, is at least one example of it. It's recorded in the Gospels, but John 18, verse 37, it says, Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? So you are a king? And Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You see, Jesus dared not, and set an example that we ought not to abandon or to give up the command, the reason that we have been sent into this world. Timothy had been given a commission to preach the gospel. He'd been given a commission to serve the church and to proclaim all the excellencies of Christ. And Paul says to him, you've been given a job, and when God gives you a job, you need to keep it, keep the command, And remember that Jesus despite all circumstances and cost to himself, kept his job. He could have taken up his life. He could have come down from the cross. He could have insisted on his rights at any time. But Jesus said before Pilate, I was born for this purpose. I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And he kept the good confession. The question becomes, whose are you and what have you been called to? Do you feel properly, do you feel the threat of giving up the thing that you have been commissioned to do? What are the roles that God has given you? What is the nature of your command? If you've been given a command as Christian, then you ought to walk as one. If you've been given command as herald or reconciler, then you ought to cry out to the world to be reconciled to Christ. If you've been given call and command as wife and as mom, then you ought to say, God, help me to keep this command and to walk into it. If you've been given command as husband and father or as coworker or boss or student, what command has God given you? What place does he have you in the world? One of the things we need to be preoccupied with is to keep these commands. Walk where God has placed you and do so faithfully. He goes on and he says, in, I think in connection with this idea of keeping, he ends the end of this chapter by telling him that he should guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to him. This, of course, is unique to Timothy's command. He's been given the gospel and he is supposed to proclaim it in the world. Paul's going to use this same phrase later in 2 Timothy, this good deposit, the idea that God has placed the gospel the power of salvation into the hearts, minds, and hands of individuals. That collectively we make up the church, but it is the individuals in whom the gospel resides that this deposit, this stewardship has been given. And we are to hold forth this stewardship, this good deposit, into the world. It is how God is determined to save and to change and to transform this fallen place. So many times, Jesus illustrates the Christian life by describing talents and deposits and owners who invest into people under their care and command. And what it looks like to guard and to hold on to and to realize the good thing that we've been given, Paul says to Timothy, be about guarding the good deposit. Finally, the last action word that he's given is this idea of avoid. It's similar to To flee, although I get the idea with flee that fleeing may mean personally in your body, run from the temptations and desires for sin. Here with avoidances, don't get wrapped up with the conversations that are so enticing around you. Irreverent babble, he calls it. Contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Likely he has particular heresies in mind that were popular and in vogue in the day. Avoid these things. You don't have to be involved. Have you seen the little meme of the the wife that says to the husband, it's so late, come to bed. And he's sitting at his computer and underneath it he, he screams out with passion to his wife. He says, I can't, someone is wrong on the internet. Paul says to Timothy, here's the thing, you can avoid that stuff. You don't have to weigh in. You don't have to be in the midst of irreverent babble. Let the babble go. Colossians chapter 2 verse 8. In a letter to the Colossians, Paul's going to say this, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. It's interesting these words, see to it that no one takes you captive. See to it as an active, I can do this actively. No one takes you captive sounds very passive. Most of us are unaware or too prideful to admit that we're a little bit vulnerable to the philosophies of the world. Many of us think that we can partake in and surround ourselves by irreverent babble constantly and think that we won't be influenced. Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, just avoid all this because you may be taken captive. Being taken captive does not indicate someone who willingly went, but who naively thought they were strong when they were weak. I don't know how the Spirit of God is going to impress upon you to put these action words into play. These may have been particular words emphasized in the way that they were specifically for Timothy and his circumstances. But my guess is is that many of us have felt the pangs or have felt the lack of these kind of things in our lives. My guess also is that there are some that we are better at and some that we are worse at. My prayer and my desire would be That at the end of all of this, however you put these into practice, that at the heartbeat what you're saying is something like this. The world can be insane. And everyone else can grow more slanderous and more suspicious and more angry. And everyone else can lose hope. And everyone else can quit. But I won't. But we won't. Would it be said that no matter how directly... Opposed or oppressed we are in the world, that we will not lose faith. These are a path, a path toward keeping our good confession, to both holding on to Christ and being held by Him. Jesus purchased us. We're not our own. He owns us by the purchase of His blood. Our confidence ultimately, the reason we take hold of him and have an act of faith is because we realize that he has given himself fully for us and he is holding us. We pursue and we flee and we take hold of and we confess because one day we will stand before the throne and we will realize that Jesus has held his ground and he will confess us before the Father. When we walk with Him, and when we hold on to Him, we begin to feel the effects and to receive the inheritance that will be ours forever one day. Jesus has gone before us, He's holding us now, and He will forever. Let's pray. God, I ask that You would, by Your Spirit, show us what it looks like to put these things into practice. And I I pray right now that whatever entangling, tempting, dangerous positions that we've put ourselves in, Spirit of God, would you give us strength to run? And I pray this morning that whatever has grown dull, In a list like righteousness and godliness and faithfulness and love and steadfastness and gentleness, whatever seems boring about any of that list, God, would you awaken us to desire to pursue these things, to be more enamored by that list than any list the world has to offer? God, make us hungry. I pray, God, would you help us to fight a good fight To not quit when we encounter opposition. To not complain or give up or expect things to be easy, but God strengthen us for the fight. Would you help us to take hold? You've given us so many good things. You've given us joy and life and promises that are yes and amen in Christ. Help us to take hold of these things, to not let them lay dormant. I pray that our confession, the things that we profess to be true, would not be dead tradition somewhere or an insurance policy. I pray that these things would drive our lives. God, I'm asking for the right measure, Spirit of God. I'm asking for the right insight and perspective. Help us to be faithful and give ourselves wholly to Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.